What does it do? It exerts pressure in the other direction. I am getting all the power to change from within. I just don't have that power. So what we teach you in AA, hopefully, is to relax your hand and ask for that power greater than yourself to come into your life. That's the power we need. We don't have the power. You know, and, and this is something that when you first get here, it's very hard to do. That's why we do this visual stuff with newcomers. You know, because you're, I'm dealing with people most of the time who, like myself, are totally unscarred by education. And therefore, they need a lot of visuals. And this is a visual that works. And the visual is, you cannot be expected to do what in reality you cannot do. Something happened. Okay. <laughs> We're tell, it's, it's, it's a very important break, I think. The uh, so Ken talked about us not knowing who we are, and uh, that we so strongly identify with our ego and our story that we think that's who we are. And giving that up, as I talked about, the last number of years, what has struck me is you see an awful lot of people, including myself, at two or three different periods of time in sobriety, who are very active in AA who are either taking the steps or trying to take the steps or are doing all the right kind of external sorts of things but are stuck, have significant issues that they need to handle and are not, and are not handling. And I think that that's one of the groups of people that I would like to address. I've had that experience happen to me at least twice. I'm in front of, you know, up until a few days ago, I've been smoking cigarettes, and I hope that that would be a case that I am now not doing that, but I have absolutely no confidence <laughs> in that fact. But I'm missing no information with respect to whether or not I should be smoking. I'm missing no information about whether my family wishes I were smoking. Uh, I don't think I'm missing what I think my higher power wants me to do about it, and I've not yet acted on that in such a, in, in a way that would affect that change in my life. And it's really interesting because it's been kind of disempowering to me. You know, I've been sober a long time. You think you should be able to just snap your fingers and take something on and, and alter it. Do what you're supposed to do. Do what you know is right. And I've not done it. Uh, and I think that that dichotomy exists in many of us that are in the room. Some of those things are more problematic than others. Some of those things hurt other people that need to be addressed. Some of those things are illegal. And need to be, there's always a hierarchy of things, you know, uh, as they come. Uh, but it's surprising how resistant we are to change. There was a man who wrote a book, I talked about this, called Scott Peck, and he wrote a book called Road Less Traveled. Opening line is life is difficult, and our inability or unwillingness to interact with that fact is what causes most of our problems. He later wrote a book called Further Along a Road Less Traveled. And in that book, he had a chapter on death and dying, and he talked it's called The Road to Omaha. It was, and uh, after a poem by Carl Sandburg. And uh, he talked about the five stages of death and dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross made so popular. And he said, you know, denial is maybe I don't have cancer. I'll get a second opinion. Anger is, you know, why the heck did this happen to me? You know, I've lived a pretty good life, you know. Uh, bargaining is, God, please remove this and I'll be your servant do whatever you would have me do, but please take this away. And 
And uh, depression is, of course, the pain caused by the circumstance that is not going away. And acceptance is, is what comes on the other side of depression. And he talks about, uh, when he goes through the stages, he said, uh, he said you go through denial, anger, and bargaining, and then you get to the depression, and the pain of the depression is so great. But he said, he uses the words, but if you allow depression to do its work, and now I'm not talking about clinical depression, I'm not trying to play doctor, I'm talking about a depression caused by a, appropriate depression caused by a circumstance. If you allow depression to do its work, which is to grind the ego to dust, and that is why problems are the entry point for most of us to grow. Because they grind the ego down to a point where the pain is so great that we are willing to open up. If you allow depression to do its work, you go through depression, almost like it's the pain is illusionary, and you get to acceptance. He said when we talk about the five stages of death and dying, most people assume that all people who die go through those five stages, but they don't. They go through the denial, anger, and bargaining, but the pain of the depression is so great that they back off and they recycle into denial, anger, and bargaining. He said, interestingly enough, those are the same processes that people go through in dealing with major issues of change in their life. Okay. So we go through denial. We're all familiar with that. Anger, you know, having to deal with it, bargaining with God, and under the depression about maybe we really have to deal with this, not just with the symptom, but actually deal with the problem. And most of us will back, often back away from that pain and just keep recycling through the same earlier part of it. And I believe that our psyche, in some ways, doesn't view change as change. We view it as death. We have so identified with who we are and so identified with our story that to give it up, it, it violates our ego. It violates our sense of identity. We're not looking for that. We're looking for improvement. Not, we're looking for relief, not a cure. And so the, inter the internal experience, I really believe an awful lot of us are afraid, seriously afraid of change. That's when the ego's in charge. I think the pain involved with change is illusionary. I think once you go through it, most of us, if we take a look back at the major changes in our lives, they've been energy producing. They are pain reducing. They are not painful. Clancy has a few things that I think are kind of unique to him, and he was the first man I heard use the words, there is no pain in change. The pain is in resistance to change. Almost all of us have had the pain of resistance, and then once you actually go through the process of change, there's an energy produced by that change. Uh, Ken was talking earlier about uh, dyslexia. They have a new organization called DAM, Mothers Against Dyslexia. And, uh, uh, yeah. It's a... Uh, So in our program, the thing that has opened it up for us is surrender. The thing that generally opens up the profound transformational technology that is Alcoholics Anonymous is the process of surrender. But surrender is not an easy thing. Chuck, I remember one time I was with Chamberlain, he was talking, and he was going to a, a symposium on alcoholism and where all the experts of the world were. And about two months later, we were together again at a conference, and someone said, what did you think of that symposium? And he, about what did you think about the experts on alcoholism? He said, well, they don't know much about surrender. And in one word, he kind of, you know, one sentence, he kind of put his finger on it. Surrender is the key. It is the opening. And what's the opening about it is it suppresses the ego enough. When the ego isn't there, we can be in the presence of what it is we have to attend to. We can be in the presence of light. When your ego and mind are there, 
You are there in your assessment, your judgment, your thoughts about it, but you are not there. And there is an enormous difference. There's a power in surrender. And for most of us, we have to go through some sort of painful experience in order to suppress our ego enough to be able to be in the presence of something. And then we take it on, and that's been the seminal experience for most of us in the in the taking of the steps and in our recovery. Would it be that we could snap our fingers now that we know the transfer now that we know the technology? You would think that any time we had an issue, a serious issue in our lives, that we could snap our fingers and apply that technology. Because we know the answer. We've experienced it. We know it. We really know it in our heart. And I think that is one of the great frustrating things about this sort of thing. And what's in the way is us. What's in the way is our mind. What's in the way of who we think we are. And a significant amount of psychological fear about change. It takes a courage to keep growing. Well, all I know about depression is, is that people spend far too much time being depressed about their depression. The idea is don't be depressed about it, just recognize it's a natural part of the deal. It's a natural transition going from this point to that point. So don't spend forever being depressed about being depressed. Just feel the depression and then move on. You know, uh, being who you are is really what it's all about. But if you don't know who that person is, then it makes for some long, long, long uh, growth. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you're a rose and you want to be a daffodil, you're in for a long day. You know, it's just a, it's, it's going to be a long day. And people constantly say, as Bob mentioned, uh, that pain is the touchstone of all growth. Pain is the touchstone of nothing. Surrender is the touchstone of spiritual growth. I never got anything out of pain but pain. And the reality is it's not until I did surrender that the spiritual growth came in. And a lot of people don't know. Again, when you're unscarred by education, words fascinate you. And I went and looked up the word touchstone. Most people don't know where that word comes from, but touchstone is an actual stone that was used to test the quality of gold and silver. So they ran the gold and silver against the touchstone, and based on the marking that it made, you could tell the quality of the ore you were panning. And uh, the bottom line here, as I said, is that pain in and of itself is nothing more than a motivator. Gets you going. And what, what happens is it's not until you surrender... And then when you surrender, whether it's smoking or anything you've done, you go through a grieving process because that grieving process is a natural process too. A lot of time what we think is, uh, you know, abnormal. There's so many things that people say are abnormal. You know, there's nothing abnormal. If you're doing it, there's nothing <laughs> abnormal. You know, I, I'm always amazed. I go to meetings where people uh, want to categorize us by saying, you know, there's us in here, and then there's the normal people out there. Watch my lips. There are no normal people. There are just people who haven't shared with you. Once they share with you, you know, you find out that they're really a little tweet, you know? I mean, I see what normal people buy. They buy things like mint-flavored dog biscuits. You know, I've been behind people in the, the shopping store where they're buying mint-flavored dog biscuits. You know, if I want my dog to have good breath, I'll put Lavoris in the toilet. You know, <laughs> so 
there really, there really are no normal people. And if you're going to get to the place you need to go, which is where I, I believe we're all heading, to get to that place you need to go, you're going to have to go away you've never gone. And in going that way you've never gone, you're going to look at times very awkward and not at your best, simply because it's a new experience and you're doing it for the first time. And that's why the mind likes to keep doing the same thing, because it knows how to handle that. And the repetition of doing that gives it a sense of confidence. But if you're going to get, if any of us are going to get to where we need to go, then we need to go a way we've never gone. And we're going to look, as I said, not too too good in the process of doing that. You know, in our book, we talk at great length about the spiritual axiom. And the spiritual axiom has application to everything. If you're in a period of discomfort, obviously it's it's something that has to do with you. You need to work on something. But there's something that we don't talk about at great length in meetings, and that's called the life axiom. And the life axiom is when you don't know what to do, you do what you know. And this creates nothing more than doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And there's a comfort in doing routine things. That's why they're called routine. If you're going to try something new, you're going to have to extend yourself. Uh, just going back to work for me, you know, I never thought I'd be back in an environment like this in my entire life again. So I hadn't kept up on all the technology. And suddenly I was dealing with a technology. You know, we live in a very techno-barbaric world. <laughs> it takes away your dignity, you know, pretty quick. And I'm amazed even in AA we have to remind people people now, please turn off your beepers, your buzzers, your phones. <laughs> when you got sober, did you ever think that would be a problem? That people in AA would be in such high demand that, you know, we'd have to tell them to turn off their phones during this hour of the meeting or something, you know. But that's just the way it is. We, you know, we, we, we've reached the point where we, we become more and more dehumanized as we surrender more and more to technology. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it doesn't have a place. I'm just saying it shouldn't be the master. And the reality here is, is that uh, at the, I made a 12-step call not too long ago, and I thought I knew the drunk right away on the corner because the guy looked pretty beat up, and I was with one of my sponsees, so we kind of just swung around to get him, and we got the right guy, and he had, what brought me to him was the paper bag he was holding. Now, that was traditionally when I got sober, what? That was a bottle of booze. That's where he had his cell phone. That's the phone he called us on. And he didn't want the other street people to take his cell phone away. And I said, this is a different drunk. You know, this is a different kind of drunk, calling you on his cell phone to come get him. And then keeping the phone in the bag so the guys on the street don't snag it from him. And the bottom line here is Bob touched on something that's a theme throughout the big book that I don't think we talk about hardly enough. And that is the theme is energy. Energy. A big theme. Big theme that we hardly touch on. You know, if you look at the 11th step, what does it talk about? It says we're going to be less fatigued. We're going to have more what? Energy. And the reason we're going to have more energy is because we're no longer fighting the phantom enemy that doesn't exist. We're just surrendering to the way it is. It's not by accident in the 12 and 12, after you read the 12th step in the 12 and 12, it says, 
if you do these steps, you will have a what? A release of a wonderful energy. You'll now be able to do things that you weren't able to do before because you're energized, like the little battery. You know, you're, you're not spending your whole day thinking. Thinking for an alcoholic is exhausting. <laughs> they go broke. They make millions. They meet Miss Wright. They divorce Miss Wright. They, and all of this in the luxury of your lazy boy. You know, like never, <laughs> never really getting out and doing anything. And then going to bed totally mentally exhausted, having accomplished absolutely nothing. And wondering why family members look askance to them simply because it's like, why is he so tired? You know? They have no idea while you're sitting there the pains that you're going through, the anguish you're going through. And we have energy now because we're not using it up needlessly. And this is very, very important. It's a theme that goes from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. It's a theme that very seldom, I've never been at a meeting where the topic has been spiritual energy as a result of taking the steps. If we don't change, it's going to stay the way it is. And for most of us, that would be not a very good thing. That we would freeze our lives and freeze the issues that are in our lives for the rest of our lives. Most of us would not want that. If I removed, if I had a magic wand that could remove the problems that each of us have in this room right now, just remove the problem, but don't change any of the underlying mechanisms that we have in our lives. And then we have this meeting five years from now. Most of us would have recreated an identical set of problems in our lives. I took away every sexual, technical, financial, marital, social, work issue that we have in our lives. Most of us would recreate those conditions in our lives over the, over the next sub subsequent period of time. We need to know that. We need to know that we have brought a knife to a gunfight. That our minds are in charge of our lives. And what we need is access to who we are at our deeper level. We need access to being. We need access to God. We need access to the power within. Most of us are using our minds to run our lives. Most of us have had problems that we have filed on our hard drive as solutions. They're in the computer as answer, not problem. You wonder why we don't, why we keep going back to the same thing. We have programmed it like it's an answer, like anger is an answer, because it worked at different periods of time in our life. It will keep people away. As you get older, it gets worse and it screws up relationships, something horrible. But when you're 13 or 14 or 15 years old, when you're programming the machine, anger and intimidation looks like a tool. I got guys I sponsor and their whole toolbox is just full of hammers, different size hammers, big hammers, small hammers. When the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that's what we do. We keep bringing the same tools to the same situation, trying to get a resolution, and they don't work. We need a, a change, but the change is profound. One of the things our book talks about is that the change that we're talking about in the program is transformational. It is not linear. It is not just an improvement. 
It is like taking us to a different place and replanting us. It is making a discovery that what we are in essence is God in drag. That who we are at the core of our being, what we're looking for, as Chuck used to say, we're looking with. That the angst, that the feeling of separation we have had is a feeling of separation from God. That once we come and reconnect with the core of our being, when we reconnect with the, the, the source of our power, when we reconnect with the God of our understanding, it will be a process of coming home. As Ken said, we were sent out from the original equipment manufacturer in good shape. There is nothing missing. The process of finding God is not a process of addition. It is a process of subtraction. It is a process of removing what is in the way. And it is a process of discovering certain things of who we are and what life is about. And who we are is not our identity. And that, I think, is the very this is the most difficult, most profound piece of information that we can have. Most of us have spent our lives thinking we're the Chevrolet. And we get in a better paint job, more chrome, buffing it up, washing it off, driving it up and down University Avenue. And we think that the more, you know, the, the you know, new seat covers, all the different, you know, new sound system, all the different things we can do to that. And as we improve that, who we are is better. We're the driver. We are not the Chevy. And the drivers are all the same. You know that movie Cocoon? You know when they when they took off the suits that they had that made them boys and girls and different people that they were all the same. I think at the level as spirit, we're all the same. You know when someone says snap your fingers and says how old are you internally? You know almost everybody is like 20 to 35. You know there's something your spirit doesn't age internally. <clears throat> there's a spirit in, inside of each one of us and it is the same. We are not the difference. We are not the, the skin bag is the vehicle. It's a spacesuit. It is necessary. You got to get issued a spacesuit and an ego to take the trip. You do. It's necessary. It is, but it's, a lot of it is baggy. It is your vehicle. Your vehicle will put you in front of different things. But who you are in essence is the spirit. It is not the. It is not the vehicle. Now you have to. Treat the vehicle nicely. You can't get rid of the vehicle. You can't get rid of the ego. You can't get rid of the body. So it's part of the original equipment manufacturer package. But what we have to do is get connected to the power of God within. And once you have that connection with the spirit, an awful lot of the things that we are afraid of starts to dissolve. And we can start to be present to life in a way that we have not been present to life before because we are not affected by our history. And we're not always having to jump off into some sort of phenomenal thing that's going to take us to salvation, that we can actually pay attention to what's going on in our life today, that we're not lacking or missing anything. And when we get in tune with that power, we can start to receive the power and put it in action in our lives. It has never been lack of talent for most of it. One of the most frustrating things that I have seen in Alcoholics Anonymous is it isn't like we're ill-equipped in the process of loving life. Many of us are equipped wonderfully well. We just can't get the we just can't put it to use over any extended period of time because we have things that are impeding that operation. So finding God and finding peace is a process of removal, not of addition. Finding out what is in your way and what doesn't work. And that 
in most ways, is what I think the process of life is about. I think it's the process of what the program is about. As you can open your eyes and really start to take a look at what's in your life, the universe will present you a message, and the message will be, it doesn't work. It's not working. When you look in your spouse's eyes and you see the look, the universe is saying, it's not working. When you look in your child's eyes and they're afraid of you, the message is, it's not working. When you get fired, the message is, it's not working. When your relationship gets broken up and you're going away, the message is, it's not working. Most of us want a different messenger. We want a different message. We'll change the circumstance. We'll find a new person. We're going to adapt the world to meet our idea of the world. We're going to reduce the world and only put people in it. We'll put up with our crap. Okay. We're not going to adjust ourselves to the world. Well, the, pro- the two processes of growth and the two processes I think of the program is to open yourself up to life and to take on the messages that life gives you. And if you cooperate with that and really take it on, what you will be moving towards, and I think this is the, the key, you'll be moving towards love. If you want to see if the program's working in your life, go to the other people in your life, your friends, your family, your employer, the people in your meetings, your sponsor, and say, hey, is Harry becoming more loving? Maybe you don't see that immediately, but over a long period of time, when I take a look at someone who's been in the program for 10 or 15 years, if I was looking one place, that would be the place I'd be looking to. Well, when it comes to love, there's no doubt in my mind that love is the most powerful force in the world. There's no force more powerful than it. And uh, John of the Cross, who was one of the great spiritual writers at one time when he was alive, said, where there is no love, put love, and then you'll find love. And I think it's probably the strongest spiritual statement I've ever heard. And that is, if you see love missing in a situation, you yourself put it in there and then you'll find it. It's not about the other person at all. It's simply about being able to accept life on life's terms. And the other thing I know is that, you know, I sponsor a lot of guys who are looking for a custom fit in an off-the-rack world. And, uh, you know, they're running around uh, trying to find somebody who's perfect. And unfortunately, they're bumping into women who are looking for the same thing. So they just bypass each other, you know, uh, They and then they wonder why they're alone in the world. You know, there are no perfect people. There are just people who are doing the deal a day at a time. As I said before, I, I feel that there's like some real themes in the book that we don't spend enough time on. Energy is one. Love is another one. Uh, the guys who wrote this book talk about it in the 10th step where they say uh, love and tolerance will be our code. Well, they threw the tolerance in there knowing the people they're going to be dealing with. Very judgmental alcoholics. Very judgmental. Not this group, but, you know, <laughs> obviously. But the others, you know, those others who aren't here, they're very judgmental. And that's why they put love and tolerance in there, because they knew initially you'd be doing more, praying more for tolerance than love, because you don't know what love is. But eventually, when you get to that point where you are consumed with love, and love comes from being willing to go all the way, and we're just not willing to go all the way. In the sixth step, it talks about, to me, another theme in the book, which we don't talk much about, is fire. You know, you're going to have to be consumed. Life is like a fire, and God is a fire. It's a mystical fire. And most of us, as we go towards the fire, there's two kinds of people. 
they're the people who walk right into the fire and get totally consumed and disfigured by it, they can never go back to who they were. It's impossible. They've been, as Bob said, transformed. And then there's the rest of us. We, you know, we, we hang out around the fire where we can stay warm, but we just don't want to get burnt. And the deal is that's what has to happen. You have to get burnt. You know, it's not by accident. When I read about the spiritual fire of consumption, and then I read the big book, they're right in tune. When Ebby went to see Bill, Bill describes Ebby as what? A man on fire. And stood in front of me was a man who's on fire. Ebby at that time had the fire. And he had it so powerfully that Bill couldn't deny it. In front of me is a man on fire. Bill in passing on the fact that he took religious instruction, thinking of turning to, uh, converting to Catholicism, was then Monsignor uh, Fulton Sheen. And he said, what I really wanted out of life, which they weren't able to give me, were little bits of spirituality that I could consume easily, and I wanted the fire to keep warmly, keep warmly, never being consumed. And that's the deal. It's like, you know, when you're growing up, and I'm sure it's more more profound here in Minnesota where you get some tough winters, but back east, my mom used to say to us constantly when we opened the door, either come in or what? Go out. You're letting the heat out. So either come in or go out. Make a decision. If you have your friends and you want to talk, either go outside and talk to them or bring them inside. But don't do what? Stand in the door and vacillate. And that's what we do because we want the idea of the result of being consumed by the fire, but we also know at the same time it means we can never be who we pretend to be now. You can't be both. You just can't be both. And that's why people who are consumed by it don't have to tell you. You just know they're consumed. There's no language for the experience of being consumed by the fire of love. We, we use all the wrong words because we don't have any words. People try to explain something that they don't even understand. And it's, it's impossible. If you have experienced God in your life, the minute you try to verbalize it, it loses. It loses all its content because it's your experience. It's your taking something that becomes now a part of you and will always be a part of you, whether you're conscious of it again or lose that consciousness for a while. You know, and, and the master who sent us out, you know, he, he understands that. And I hear people say the most profound dumb thing. It's almost like they all got through school and started by education. But they say things like, well, I'm not different. Everyone in here is different. We weren't made off the Ford assembly line. You know, every one of us is a model that since the beginning of time has been expected. And there'll never be another one like us. Take my word for it. Our fingerprints are not the same. You know, our footprints are not the same. Our DNA is 98% the same, but that 2% differential allows people to tell this person from that person. The fact that through all the millennia that have gone before, we're still 98% the same DNA means we all came from the same place. And we get these things in our ideas. I remember hearing... I remember hearing Malcolm X speak in New York when he was quite profound at doing that. And he said something that always has stayed with me. He said, it's not about what people call you. 
it's what it's about what you answer to. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes we create this deal that you're less than, you're not the same. And, and that's really a very, very negative place to start from. We have enough baggage. All you have to do to see our baggage is read Dr. Silkworth. You know, well, here's this little group, and we're going to make some general statements about them. Number one is they're maladjusted to life. They're outright mental defective. You know, they're in full flight from reality. They're children of chaos and producers of confusion in their best moments. You know, this is a lot of baggage to start with. And in there, you're trying to scrape away those levels and get to who you are. And who you are is somebody who was sent out okay. And the reason you know you're okay is because if you weren't okay, you wouldn't be here. You're okay. We always have been okay. We always will be okay. We're, you know, we're sitting on a pendulum on a clock that's been wound for eternity. We have absolutely nothing to do and forever to get it done. That should not create a lot of pressure. <laughs> but most of us really know those words, but that's not our experience. We don't feel okay. We don't feel equipped. We don't feel like we have all eternity. It's not okay, and I'm not okay. I was born with that feeling. That's part of what alcohol took away. We don't feel like we're part of God. We feel like we're separate. We feel like we're in competition. We feel like we are under-equipped in the business of living life. With an external view, it is not surprising that then our solutions we're looking for are all external. We're looking for faster horses, younger women, and more money. Or if you're a guy, or, or you know, however that goes, we're looking for more. We're looking for more. Our society today, the God of our society is psychology. The feeling that if we get in touch with our feelings and understand it better, somehow we will resolve it. Psychology is not deep enough to resolve the issues that we're talking about. Spirituality touches at a much deeper level than psychology. Insight is not enough to touch what we're looking for. What we want, most of us want happiness. We heard a great distinction about happiness, such as happiness is dependent upon our perception that circumstances are positive. Peace and joy are not. Our book is just full of the words of, of peace and joy, of serenity. What we're looking for is of God. It is not circumstantial. Circumstances will not bring this. It is not external. But the world tells you it is external. The world tells you get more and it will be okay. More money. You know, make your body different. Make, you know, be thinner. Be richer. Be, I mean, it, it is, the, the, you're not okay. The message is endemic in our society as we are spending billions of dollars in our society trying to get people on the edge and keep them uncomfortable. We are wanting machines with the idea that if we get something different, it'll then be okay. But clearly, even though we may know the words that the God of our understanding is the answer, that we lack the power. What we want is the peace that surpasses understanding. But what most of us want is money and things. Most of us, when we're when we're connected to our mind, we are we have a constantly the the ego and the mind are in charge. It is an obsessive thinking, and there's an internal. The committee is meeting, and there is an internal message about what we need to be okay, and we now don't have it. So when Wadsworth said that most people lead lives of quiet desperation, he was speaking about all of us. 
most of us in some sort of way, even though we have had modicums of success that most people in the in the day-to-day business of living, most of us have an in, some internal sense of desperation, and it's not okay. And so what we're talking about is finding some peace beyond that, a resolution beyond that. That model is bankrupt. That model, when Ken said, when the guy comes to him and says, I'm thinking about committing suicide, and he says, perfect. Couldn't get a better entry point. Okay? What do you have to do to get, well, you don't have to do much. You just have to die and change everything in your life. Other than that, it's okay. It's very simple. But, I mean, that's the answer. What do you have to do? Oh, die. Die to self. What do I have to change? Everything. But, he said what he, what he lost. He thought he lost his treasure, but he had it all the time. Most of us, our perception of the world, what we, if we got what we wanted, it would still not be okay. Having more of what we now have is not going to make it okay. We need a different paradigm. Most of us are saying, hey, it's over here. Most of us want to look where the lamppost is. That's just, we think the light's better. That's where we lost our keys. You know, we're, you know, we lost them over here in the dark, but we can't see over there. So we're not going to go over there. It's a different paradigm. It's a shift. The model that we have and the model that the world gives us does not work. Doing it faster, doing it harder, doing it more, doing it longer, finding the perfect sponsor, getting into an intensive group situation, getting into an intensive step group. These things may assist. They may actually be part of the process of you expending yourself so that you run out of yourself and you get to surrender where you can finally open it up. The answer is to find a power greater than yourself. The reason that the energy is there is that is who you truly are. At the core of your being, you are connected. At the core of your being is a knower. You know what to do. When you are connected to that core of your being, it is okay. The reason we are experiencing pain is that a pain is we are unwilling to accept the world and ourselves the way it is. We cannot be in the presence of life the way it is. So we can't interact with it. We're in judgment of it. We're in, we have pain about it. We're in reaction to it, but we don't do anything about it. We're paralyzed with it. We just have this ongoing commentary about what is going on with life, but we cannot powerfully interact with it because we can't be with it. What what happened? The moment that we finally got to a point where we could be with our alcoholism, we started to implement a cure. Prior to the fact we surrendered, we could not be with our alcoholism, and our alcoholism managed us. What you can be with, you can manage. What you can't be with manages you. And most of us cannot be with most of the problems in our lives. They are problems by definition because we cannot be present to them. If, they were pre- if we were able to be present to them, they'd just be circumstances. But the reason that we're so resistant to them, we create them as problems and we have absolutely no resolution to them. Even though we would know what action we could take to resolve those circumstances. In uh, in Bill's story in the big book, he makes mention of the fact that uh, he says 
surely this must be the answer, self-knowledge. And then the very next sentence starts, but it is not. You know, knowing, knowing what to do and doing it are two entirely different things. And that's why we live in a world where uh, hopefully in Alcoholics Anonymous, we, we gain enough insight to know that if you don't like the way things are, you're going to have to take some action. And constantly inventorying the same stuff is not taking an action. Constantly going to anyone to seek advice about it is not taking an action. Taking an action is taking an action. You know, if you were on fire, you know, you'd want to put it out before you really talked about it with anybody else. You know, it would... But that's not the way we go. And the way we go is the way we go. And the reason for that is simply because we've come to accept that. And that's why you have to start with a basis of saying, I'm going to allow for some change in my life. And that change is not going to be goal-oriented. It's going to be, I'm going to allow life to come and work me over. And that means a lot of times doing things that initially seem very uncomfortable. There was a certain sense of uh, ease in my life when I first got sober, and I had absolutely no material things at all. I'll tell you, those first few months of sobriety were terrific for me. I had nothing. Everybody knew my story. It had already been in the paper, so I had done a fifth step publicly. You know, the bottom line was is I had nothing to hide. There was no lie to tell because everybody already knew the truth. And what happened was along the way, I began to gain a false sense, once again, of who I was, and that began to put the space between God, as I understand him, and myself. God has is just nothing more to me today than a consciousness. I don't have to have anyone explain that as an entity. I don't have to know what comes next. My sense of ease knows in coming uh, from the fact that I've been okay since I got up this morning, and I'll be okay. And the reason I'll be okay is because I'm not looking to do anything else that involves harm to anybody else. I'm not planning ahead to anything else. I'm just sitting here. And Bob mentioned before that you don't have any problems in the now. We suffer from a spiritual malady. And I never knew what that spiritual malady was until about two and a half, three years ago. And then it became very evident to me what that spiritual malady is for me. And that spiritual malady is I had spent the better part of my life trying to live where I couldn't live, either in the past full of guilt and remorse or in the future of projection of phantom fear. I was never in the moment. And the minute I began to adapt my life to living in the moment, I realized that all of those things just went away. They were not real. Uh, And the reason they went away is because this is where God lives. God lives in the moment. It's not by accident that we have a sentence in the big book that says, there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him Thursday. You know? <laughs> the God being in the now means that if I'm there, the spiritual malady doesn't have a hold of me. I'm just doing what's expected of me. And what's been expected of me since the beginning of time. And when I'm not living there, I'm living in that separation that that was talked about. You cannot be separate and at the same time be a part of. You know, there's a there's a there's a saying that comes out of the east and it goes like this and it says, "There is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. There is no way to peace. Peace 
is the way. And there is no way to enlightenment. Enlightenment is the way. And when I first heard that, I knew it was profound, but I didn't know what the application was. And now I do. It's, it's our triangle. It's our triangle, the, the legacy of AA, you know, the three legacies. My happiness has come in doing what? Being of service. The more service I do, the happier I am. My peace has come in being in unity with my fellow man. You can't have a fight with me or a tug of war with me because I refuse to hold my hand. There's no resistance. You do what you have to do. And then, and then the enlightenment has come. If I wasn't in recovery, I wouldn't stand a chance of being here and talking about the things we're talking about. I'd be out doing the things that would prevent me from being here. So life gets as complex or as simple as you want it to be. You know, if, if you want to create a habit, you have to repeat an act. It's just that simple. It's amazing to me. I sponsor guys who are good golfers. They have handicaps or no handicaps, and they talk about it almost like continually. And they give up a certain amount of time to become really, really good golfers, because my understanding is it doesn't come easy. And the thing is, is how much time do you allocate to the things we're talking about? Today is like a four-hour day or a five-hour day, whatever. But how much time ongoing is allocated in that area? If you get up in the morning and you have a legal pad and it has an agenda on it for the day, then where's God's agenda? How does God get into your agenda if you've already got the whole day planned? Where do you say, I want God to come into my life, but, geez, I only got this 15 minutes here between uh, this and this. I can tell you, having volunteered in the hospice program for 10 years, and holding the hands of a lot of people, really, really nice people, and watching them die, and watching them ease out of this world into whatever comes next. On a given day, they had an agenda. Things they thought were important. And the very next day when they knew they were going to die, that agenda changed. Everything that was on this piece of paper became crap. It had no application to the reality they were now in. And the idea is if you can get rid of that agenda that easily at that point, why not toss it aside now? Why not get down to what's really real now and not have to wait for the last few days if you get those days? Sometimes you don't even get those. So why not set aside the time to do it now? I just know that people who are trying to pursue a conscious contact with God never fail. There's always success in the ratio of attempts that you put into it. No effort in this area ever goes to waste. None. What the little bit you do, the quito, whatever it is, it goes to the good. You know, when I was out there on the reservation with the Navajo, they had a great thing, and that is, you know, if you do a rain dance long enough, you get rain. <laughs> and my my Navajo name was Quick Clock, which means white pony man. And I was a white pony man. And I went from place to place. And what I found out is people who in the material sense have absolutely nothing to be connected with nature is, is an unbelievable thing. An unbelievable thing. I'm a kid from New York. I never saw a whole lot of nature. But up there on the San Juan River, I had the experience of sitting there for two days and watching eagles come down out of the sky and take trout out of the San Juan River. And those trout are just cruising along thinking things are good. You know, the, 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 the guys are over here fly fishing. I'm over here. Everything is looking good. I'm just cruising along. 
they don't know what, that the end is bearing down. And suddenly you just see them hit that water, those talons go out, and that fish is gone. And folks, that could happen to us at any time. Any time. And the bottom line is, if you want to be good to go, you got to get ready. And getting ready means doing less and less. I don't think there's a person in here who would argue with the fact that if you want the things of this world, you have to speed up. If you want the things we're talking about, you have to slow down. You have to make a choice. It's a conscious choice on a daily basis. Do you want to speed up and be more and more in the competition? Or do you want to slow down and have life in all of its, in all of its abundance? The abundance of life is its own abundance. It doesn't need any add-ons. You know, did you ever see a hearse go by with a with a with a U-Haul attached to it? You know? Did you ever see a hearse with luggage racks? You know? Speaks to itself. 